The greatest people are self-managing. They don't need to be managed. You, if they know what, if, if once they know what to do, they'll go figure out how to do it. And they don't need to be managed at all. What they need is a common vision, and that's what leadership is. What leadership is is having a vision, being able to articulate that so the people around you can understand it, and getting a consensus on a common vision. We wanted people that were insanely great at what they did, but we're, we're not necessarily those seasoned professionals, but who had on, at the tips of their fingers and in their passion the latest understanding of where technology was and what we could do with that technology, and who wanted to bring that to, to lots of people. So the neatest thing that happens is when you get a core group of uh, you know 10 great people, it becomes self-policing as to who they let into that group. So I consider the most important job of someone uh, like myself is recruiting. We agonized over hiring. We had interviews. I could go back and look at some of the interviews that you had. They would start at 9 or 10 in the morning and go through dinner. Uh, a new interviewee would talk to everybody in the building at least once, maybe a couple times, and then come back for another round of interviews, and then we'd all get together and talk about it. And then before they'd fill out an application. <laughs> <laughs> no, they never no, filled the out. The most critical part of the interview, interview, at least to my mind, was when we finally decided we liked them enough to show them the Macintosh prototype and then sat them down in front of it. And if they just kind of were bored or said, this is a nice computer, we didn't want it. We, we wanted their eyes to light up and them to get really excited and then we knew they were one of us. And everybody just wanted to work, not because it was work that had to be done, but it was because something that we really believed in that was just going to really make a difference. And that's what kept the whole thing going. We all wanted exactly the same thing. Instead of spending our time arguing about what the computer should be, we all knew what the computer should be, and we just went and did it. We went through that stage in Apple where we went out and we thought, oh, we're going to be a big company, let's hire professional management. We went out and hired a bunch of professional management. It didn't work at all. Most of them were bozos. They, they knew how to manage, but they didn't know how to do anything. And so if you're a great person, why do you want to work for somebody you can't learn anything from? Uh, and you know what's interesting? You know who the best managers are? They're the great individual contributors who never ever want to be a manager, but decide they have to be a manager because all, every, no one else is going to be able to do as good a job as them. Inscribed inside the casing of every Macintosh, unseen by the consumer, are the signatures of the whole team. This is Apple's way of affirming that their latest innovation is a product of the individuals who created it, not the corporation. Pretty amazing VHS tape of the early days of Apple. What I love about how Steve Jobs talks about recruitment is that people recruited to a vision. And this group of what looked like teenagers that became the software designers that have designed iPhones and, and computers from that point on really were part of a common vision. And today as we look at Jesus' startup, we're going to see he was a compelling visionary who recruits an eclectic group of guys. 70 disciples, 120 men, women, and then he picks 12 specific apostles that <laughs> were some of the most narrow-minded, self-centered, doubting, anger-laden people in history. And he gives them such a common vision that these folks turned the Roman world upside down. We got folks in this group who disagree on everything. From politics, as you'll see in a moment, to how to handle people who, who disagree with them. And Jesus is going to, through prayer, recruit a team 
to this new vision, and he's going to say the thing that's going to unite us, the common vision that we're going to be known for, that my followers are going to be known for, is how well they love. How well they love God, love God with your heart, soul, and mind, and how well they love each other. And in that, these 12 apostles create a movement that creates a love train that transforms history and the Roman Empire from the very beginning of time up until today. What's pretty amazing is that when most people think of uh, Jesus, or most people think of religious people, uh, or Christians, well, the last thing most people think of is love. <laughs> Isn't that true? We think of judgment, we think of finger-pointing, and yet Jesus set the original stage that what his startup, what his organization, what his mission was supposed to be all about was about love. Love for people who believe the way you did. Love for people who believe totally different from you. Different cultures could all come together that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus knew that part of a good startup, it would be all about communication. I was reading an excerpt, it was a TED Talk, I believe, by Mark Zuckerberg, talking about Facebook and how it began. And that early on, communication was critical to their growth. And they decided early on they weren't going to take on any debt. And early on, they were going to find ways to connect people. And they decided to take on the hardest market first by beginning Facebook at Harvard. Because of all the bureaucracy related to working through that system, if they could make it work at Harvard, they could make it work anywhere. And MySpace and other things were were pretty quick behind. They decided they were only going to expand every time they made $85 because that was the cost of another rig they could add to their server. And that became a natural way in which it slowed their growth so it could be sustainable as they went from college to college, from college to college, and eventually around the world. It was interesting in this TED Talk he was giving in 2012 to talk about the whole importance of of communication in a startup. And Jesus, when he begins talking about communication, he's got a pretty profound insight that I think I get to observe all the time in people's lives. I mean, even when we started Horizon, before we launched publicly, we spent two years in prayer trying to sense what it was that we needed to be to communicate to the group of people who came together, where we headed, where we going, how are we going to be unique, why does Cincinnati need another church? We knew communication was going to be key. And here's the truth Jesus is going to share that I think is true of every area of our life. We rarely, rarely feel the urgency for good communication. You rarely feel the urgency for great communication, but you always feel the consequences of bad communication. People don't come in for marriage counseling and say, you know, our marriage is doing great, but we really want to communicate really well. That's not when they come in. No, no. it's gotten so bad, so terrible, that they feel the consequences of bad communication. They're like, we've got to fix this. This is not working out. You're having a a, a fight with your son or daughter, maybe your mom or dad, an in-law. It's not like you said, hey, we're going to start this relationship all right. We're going to have some great communication here. It's urgent that we get this right before problems. No. You feel the consequences of bad communication, and then you're like, we've got to fix this mess. 
And isn't it true that in every organization, every family, every situation, that if you give two people two dots, data point one, data point two, and you don't communicate well with great communication, what happens? They connect those two dots in the most pathological way possible, don't they? Questioning your motives, what really happened, what's really going on. Because when you don't have great communication going on, you end up with really bad communication. And then there's gossip and lack of morale and people not connecting. And then when the consequences stack up, heading toward divorce, heading toward estrangement, people leaving that you don't want to lose, then you say, oh, I'm now urgent about having better communication. But you weren't really urgent about great communication. He just felt the consequences of bad communication. And Jesus is going to talk about that same principle when it comes to prayer. Rarely do people say, you know what, I've been thinking about my life in the next two years, five years, ten years. I really need to work on my prayer life. I hardly ever have heard that in my life. Instead, people feel the consequences of their bad communication with God. You know, I've accomplished all my goals and I'm just wondering, isn't there more to life? Yeah, I'm facing a situation now I can't control. I got a medical report. My wife got a medical report. For the first time, my resources, I don't have enough resources to fix this problem. And the consequence is maybe I need a spiritual life. Or maybe you have kids and you're like, well, listen, I don't need church. My wife doesn't need church, but we'll go for the kids, right? Isn't that what everybody does? Because parenthood, there's nothing like parenthood to sort of remind you of how big the responsibility is And you're like, I'm not sure what I would teach him or how I would teach him. And it's the consequences of your bad communication or lack of communication with God that's got you thinking, maybe I need to engage in this. So Jesus, from the very beginning, when he's going to recruit his disciples, he's going to model the importance of great communication with God and developing a prayer life and great communication with the team about their vision and the mission. So today we're going to look at two keys to that kind of communication. And I hope you're going to discover a pretty phenomenal concept that Jesus has, that what he offers is very fundamentally different from other religions. He's going to show you who you are, covered or wrapped in his grace, and how to depend on God in a pretty profound way that can enhance your communication with him and with others. So our first principle, our first key is that communication, great communication with God and with others is going to remind you who we are and who we're depending on. I mean, think about your prayer life for a moment. It's not an area that is my greatest strength. But if your prayer life tells you who you depend on, and if you want to take the word prayer life out for a second and say, who do you talk to about your issues tells you who you depend on, And who do you mostly depend on? I talk to myself about the issues. Well, you probably depend on yourself mostly. Sometimes we have mentors or friends. And people will say, yeah, all we can do now is pray, right? I've tried everything else. Now, last resort, I'll ask the guy who's in charge of the universe maybe to throw me a bone, right? As leaders, we trust our instincts, we trust our past scars, we trust our successes, we trust uh, our, our track records and our resumes. But your prayer life will tell you 
who you really depend on, whether or not you depend on God one thousandth of a percent, or if it's a really vital part of your communication line. And like I said, great communication with God is rarely a felt need. Rarely. It's the consequences of bad communication with God that draws people to make those better communication and make that, that I've got to get serious about my spiritual life. And Jesus does it. I mean, Jesus, as we've been discovering in this series, is claiming to be God in many, many ways. What's profound, even if you don't agree with him being God, he's definitely claiming it. And as someone who claims to be God, you would think, now there's a guy who doesn't need a prayer life. Right? What, what does he need to talk to God for? He is God. And yet Jesus, from the very beginning of the startup, models prayer. Before he even picks or recruits his team, he goes up to a mountain to pray and ask God for wisdom. Who should be on this team? Who should be the leaders of this movement? They're going to transform the world. And he asks God, prays all night long, in fact, and comes out of that circumstance saying, I now know which of the disciples I'm going to assign to be apostles. And if you were a consultant, and many of us are leadership consultants, and you had the resumes of these 12 guys, you would have said, next, next, this is the wrong group. This is the wrong type. These have got personality issues. They've got doubting issues. They've got anger issues. This is not the team to do much of anything, let alone transform the world. But out of his time of prayer, Jesus not only hears from God why he should pick these 12, but then he begins to communicate with great communication a vision that brings the most eclectic group of people together to transform the world. And he's going to challenge them. You see, most Hebrews or Jewish people who would be reading the story of Jesus, who was Jewish, they were looking for the new Moses. Moses is the one who brought down the Ten Commandments from the mountain. He's the one that called the twelve tribes of Israel to go and, and exit out of Egypt. And Luke has written this in such a way, and Jesus is modeling this in such a way, to show that he's the new Moses. See, Moses went up to a mountain, get Ten Commandments, came down, called twelve disciples. Jesus begins his ministry going up a mountain, hearing from God, calling twelve apostles. And there's a little hint in what Moses did that we played out in what Jesus does, I want to show you. And this is this vision he has for what a church is supposed to be. Moses hears from God, I want my people, anyone who follows me, anyone who wants to be part of my movement, to know they are a special treasure to me above all people. I own the whole earth, but when you come to understand the message of grace, you are special to me. Of all the planets I'm spinning, of all the atoms I'm holding together, I think of you every day. Secondly, I want to form you into a community or a team that I want to be a kingdom, a brand new type of kingdom of priests. Now he's not talking to religious people or just the priests. He's saying I want every single person who follows me to see themselves as a priest or representative of a new kingdom. And when you think of a priest, do you think of yourself? Most of us think of a priest, we think maybe you know, bad stuff in the news or some scandal. We don't want to be a priest. But a priest in those days was very sacred. And to be a priest was somebody who would represent people to God by praying to God, communicating to God what people have going on, and somebody who would represent God to people, loving the way God loves, living the way God lives, offering wisdom 
that God has given them. And God says, I want the church to be a kingdom of priests, a a people living in a kingdom of deception and darkness, but represents a whole new kingdom of love and hope that the world has never seen before. And if you will accept my forgiveness, you'll also be a holy nation. Now, I haven't been holy five minutes of my life, ever. I certainly haven't been that particularly special, and I certainly am not very priestly. But the message of the Bible is that when God forgives you in Jesus, that you can actually be fully forgiven and God sees you as holy, as sacred, as fully forgiven of past, present, future. That's his vision for this new community. And when you realize you're part of a bigger kingdom, you're not here to build your own castle, you're here to serve a greater kingdom, it brings humility into your life and it brings purpose into your life. I was reading a 2016 John Glenn passed away astronaut and he had spent his life you know sort of working his way up the corporate ladder uh, engineer pilot to eventually you know, climbing his way up again again to eventually he gets picked to be on NASA and then to be the first man to orbit the earth now when you're the first man orbiting the earth what are you thinking to yourself first man to orbit the earth <laughs> look at all the things I've accomplished look at all the things I've done That's not what he said. He said being up there, seeing the moon and the earth and the sun from that perspective was deeply humbling. He said in an interview in 98, when I look at the creation and I saw that view, it was impossible for me to be an atheist. He said my faith increased when I realized I was part of a much bigger story. More than that, he said, on his second orbit around the earth, he prayed every single day, realizing he's dependent upon and a small piece of a much larger picture. See, prayer reminds us who we are, a new identity God offers us, but also who we're depending on. Are we only depending on our own resources or do we need access to the one who made us? Two years ago, I saw an interview with Alan Mulally from the CEO of Ford, especially during those 2008 years when the financial crisis hit. Now, here's a guy who had an incredible resume. CEO of Boeing, got recruited by Ford. His salary at the time was more than all the other CEOs of the other automobile industries combined. And yet he was in 2008 going to negotiate the largest loan in U.S. history. Rather than being bailed out, they were going to take a loan and pay it back. And as he was leaving that day, a friend who attends Horizon said he was there that day and that Alan stopped by and saw he had a Bible verse up in his office or something and said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Would you pray for me today? We're going to need help. We're about to negotiate the largest loan in U.S. history. And certainly we've prepped and certainly we've got the paperwork, but we need God to help. A lot of jobs are on the line. A lot of futures are at stake. So again, here's somebody who could have leaned on to his resume, but even in the midst of challenge says, I need to depend on, have communication lines with God in order to accomplish what I think is before me. And sometimes that comes in the form of conviction. I was really convicted recently that um, God sort of, you know, tapping me on the shoulder, sort of an unsettledness that I need to work on something. I wasn't sure what it was. So I was praying about a week ago, and I said, God, I just would love some help here. You know, what is it you want me to, to fix? Or what is it you want to address in my life? And I, I sensed, and this doesn't happen very often, but I sensed just the word Hezekiah. So it came in my mind. I'm like, Hezekiah? 
I don't even know who that is. I think he's in the Bible somewhere. So I looked up Hezekiah, and in Second Chronicles 20, it popped up in my Bible software. It said, Hezekiah had allowed his heart to be lifted up and become proud, and he had to be humbled of his arrogance. I was like, well, that's not really the verse I was looking for. <laughs> and I took a few moments and said, well, God, what do you tell me there? Are there areas in my life that I'm not being humble? And I realized, you know, a couple years ago, when my back issue was out and autism chaos was all over the place, man, my prayer life was so dynamic. I needed God every moment of every day to sort of make it through the day. But as my circumstances went up, my prayer life went down. And God was saying, you become self-sufficient. More than that, I had done this one-man drama a few weeks ago, and one of the challenges when I write those things is I try and stick as close as I can to Scripture, so I memorize as much word for word from the Bible as I can. And so many people came up to me and said, well, I really enjoyed that. It was so compelling. And I said, hey, did you notice that most of that came right out of Luke 5 and right out of Luke 6 and right out of Luke 24 and 25? Part of that was my passion for it. And part of that was, did you realize how hard I worked on that memorization? <laughs> and it hadn't happened once. I'd actually said it four or five times. It was like God was nudging me on the shoulder saying, you did a whole account of my greatest day in history. And you're trying to take credit or glory for yourself. Oh, that is what I did. Sorry, God. And that again is what it means to be part of a kingdom. Am I the hero of the story or am I a small place of God's bigger story? And communication with God, wouldn't you rather have God nudging you and tapping you on the shoulder than having your spouse or kids having to do it all the time? I mean, isn't it so much healthier? I mean, and I'm, I'm open to feedback from my kids and from my spouse, but it works so much better when God directs me to fix something than me getting defensive when my spouse tells me to do something. And that's why having great communication lines with God will help your marriage, it will help your friendships, because you learn how to have God sort of nudge you and bump you back in place. And when you get defensive to say, you were pretty defensive, that was actually good feedback. You should have listened to your spouse today when they said that, your son or daughter. Yeah, they didn't say it the right way, but there was some truth there you had to look into. That's kind of how prayer works as God begins to work through that. Remember several years ago we did a series called Honest to God where we talked about prayer is really talking to God. And, and some people, maybe you're, not, you're new to prayer, you're like, well, I know two prayers. And you think of prayer as this formulaic thing, and those are prayers. But think of prayer simply as talking to God about your life. Telling God about your day. In that series, Honest to God, we talked about being honest with God about your anger, about your doubts, about your frustrations. We had a friend who had recently come to know Jesus, and he said, this was such a freeing series for me that I could talk slang to God, he said. I really want that kind of relationship with God, where it could be real and honest. Now notice, Jesus again has set this vision... God has called him now to pick 12 apostles. He comes down, he picks one of them named Peter. And Peter will be with Jesus for three years. And he'll be so struck by what Jesus has called him to do, he will eventually write a letter to other startups, other churches, and look at the very words he uses in his first letter. He said, what God has called us, not religious people, not professional pastors, every single follower of Jesus is a, royal, a chosen generation... A royal priesthood, same words of Moses, a holy nation, just like Moses, you can be God's own special people. That's the vision from the very beginning of the startup. Not that you'd be religious, 
that you would know you are holy because God makes you holy. You're special because God chose you. That you're a priest, a sacred person who, know, who can talk directly to God as a priest and can represent God in the culture and the neighborhood you live in. Peter understood the vision. And here's the purpose in life. If you get that, he adds the word that. What's the word that there for? That. What's your purpose in life if you become a follower of Jesus? That you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. Which means you'll love like he loves. You'll help like he helps. You'll be as compassionate to others as he's been compassionate to you. You'll be as long-suffering with others as God's been long-suffering with you. That you live out this loving ideal in your relationships and in your world. That's what he's called you to. That's what he's desired you. And that's why prayer was so critical. Because life will beat you up and knock you down. And you won't feel very holy. You won't feel very royal. You certainly won't feel like a priest who has access to God. But through prayer and the Bible, God begins to remind you of who you are and how he sees you because of what Jesus did. And that's why prayer was so critical. That Jesus would pray at the very beginning of his launch for the people and for this new mission. And that certainly was true at our church. When I came 15 years ago, built into our bylaws is actually a requirement that the ex- elders and exec board, and I'm on each of those, take 24 hours once a year, often we've done up to two or three days, to go away as a team to hear from God, fast for at least 24 hours, which means go without food, and then pray for the church. So the last 15 years, and even before that, a couple years before I was here, the leaders of our church will go away and we print out every name of every person who attends the church. And we spend a day, sometimes three days, praying for your marriages, praying for your families, praying for, for success for you, praying that you'll find meaning and purpose, praying that you'll find environments to explore. And as a team, we've done that for the last 15, 20 years. That prayer is that important to us. And in hearing from God, we've tried to sense what is God calling us to do for the next year, the next couple years. And that really got instituted into how this building got here as well. In fact, what we did in 2008, we were praying about what not to build. And this was 2008. Nobody was building because of the financial crisis. But many people had prayed about giving financially for two years. Some had then come later and and given a four-year pledge. So we had money in the bank. Nobody building in Cincinnati. We're on this conference call. We're like, what do you sense God is doing? And, And each one of us wrestling through points and counterpoints, but praying together. So I just really think God's telling us we should move forward with building this building now. And boy, if you tried to build this building today, it would be three, four times the cost. It was the best time in history to build it. In fact, because of some of the changes in the amount of dirt we moved on the facility, you probably couldn't build this facility today just because of some of the changes in the law. And it was amazing to hear from God as a church to move forward. And so our next step was, well, let's ask everyone to pray. So we had an event called Church on the Green where right here we had a giant balloon. This is that spot right here. And that yellow balloon represented where the chapel would one day be. Now, at that point, we had 200 people coming to our exploring service, about one section, and about 100 people coming to our equipping service. And we're going to build a room that held 500. Really? It's going to seem presumptuous. We're never going to fill that up. Let's pray. Let's pray that people feel free to come if they believe in Jesus or don't. 
whether they are sold on God or kicking the tires on God. And so we had all 300 of us at the church, we prayed over that balloon right here, that this would be a space that people would enjoy exploring their faith. That this would be a place that people would study verse by verse through the Bible at our equipping service. Then we set up another balloon down by the children's area. And we we had dozens of people go down to the student area and children's area and envision what the building might look like and pray that this would be a space that God would draw people, would help families, would anchor into kids a value system that they would never recover from as they learned about a God who saw them as special. And people began to pray about, you know, their giving. Some were, you know, adding a one-year pledge or two-year pledge in that. But really praying that this would be a place that people would find freedom. Well, sure enough, we started building. And pretty amazing. We had this church on the green. And the church on the green, we passed out little butterflies with golf tees. that you pushed through the middle of them. Maybe you remember if you were there. And we said, let's pray for our friends. That this would be a place not to be a holy huddle to take care of ourselves, but to create a type of community that wants to love on people here, near, and far. So each one of those butterflies was ways we prayed for our friends. No pressure, not like some weird, like, you know, you need to be a Christian one day. But just, hey, if, if they would be open to it, and if it would be sort of helpful in their journey, that this, if this could be a place that would help them explore, we'd love for that. And we put butterflies all over the property. And then we dumped 310,000 cubic yards of dirt on top of it. They're still under here today. It was prayer. Then we started building the building. What's pretty amazing is that we then invited people to come on a tour where everyone got to sign and write their names and prayers all over the building before we drywalled it. That's me when I was young and had hair, by the way, in case you don't recognize that guy. Um, And if you pulled up the drywall or pulled back the paint even today, there are prayers embedded all behind the drywall. Because we wanted this to be a place that people could come and connect with God wherever they were, whatever their next step was. And we knew that we weren't capable of doing it. We wanted God to invite people, woo people, make people feel comfortable here. And so the whole building was really covered in prayers even from the beginning there. Because we wanted this to be a place of prayer. Even when it came time for me to be senior pastor, which happened about the same time we bought the property, I didn't want to be a senior pastor. Um, I, had, I was on the creative arts team. I was the leader of the creative arts team, and I was the teaching pastor for the equipping service, but I rarely spoke at the exploring service. And the elder said, would you pray about that? I'm like, I don't pray about it. You don't pray about it. I'm like, I know a lot of senior pastors. They seem miserable. I, I don't know. It's, I don't know what they do during their week, but I like to teach, I like to create, and I like to be with people. And the senior pastors I know, I don't know what they're doing, but they don't have time to teach, they don't have time to create, and they're not hanging out with people very often. And so our team prayed for a couple of years together, and I was part of the search for the replacement. And it continued to be obvious to all of us that there might be a way that we could form a team together. And so the elders came to me and said, Chad, we'd like you to really consider this. And how about we create a, a senior pastor position that leverages your ability to create, teach, and be a people? So my folks come up to me all the time. I know you're busy. I have time to meet. I always have time to meet. And within a couple weeks, I can always get you in. So I love meeting with people. And we've organized our jobs around being able to be with people. Because we wanted that to be the hallmark of our church, that we would have access, that you could know the people who are leading. Well, that's our first key, is that when you learn to communicate to God and communicate to others, it reminds you who you are. And this new identity is far profound, more than religion could ever give you, and who you're depending on. The second key, and our last one, is that 
Communication brings a unity of vision to a very diverse community. Very diverse. Oh my goodness. If you were a consultant, you would never tell Jesus to pick this team. And let me show you why. Here's the apostles. He comes down, calls from this group of 70 to 120 disciples, the 12 who are going to be the apostles. First one is Simon, also known as Peter. He will deny him three times. Andrew, his brother, James and John actually have a nickname from Jesus. He calls them the sons of thunder because they got such an anger issue. One day the people reject him in a particular city. And James and John are like, hey, Jesus, how about we call down fire and burn those people up? (laughs) She's like, no, no, guys, guys, that's not the vision. Love train, guys, love train. We're here to love our enemies, even those who reject us. And he helped these two young men deal with their anger. And become more loving and patient. Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew works for the government. He's a government official. We learned about him a few weeks ago with Levi. So he works for the government. Thomas, and that's not the problem yet. I'll get to that in a second. Thomas is a doubter who's always going to need more evidence. He's not a particularly quick believer. James and Simon called the zealot. Zealots hated the government. So you have a government official teamed up with an anti-government anarchist. One of his disciples is watching CNN all the time. The other one's addicted to Fox News. And he is going to take this team of political differences and personality differences and deniers and betrayers. And he is going to show them how they can have a common vision of learning how to love each other and then learning how to love the world. You never would have picked this team. So don't think the apostles, wow, the apostles, they're amazing. I've seen the, the paintings with the halo over their head. Well, that's a nice painting, but it's not them. They're scoundrels. Scout, narrow-minded, self-centered, me-focused. And I, I, I read about them and I go, thank goodness that's me. If God can work, if Jesus could work with them, he could work with me. Because I lose my temper. And I have doubts. And I betray him. And I don't go the right way. And I get arrogant. And Jesus, why would he pick these 12 people to be his representatives? Because he wanted early on you to know that his community, his startup, was about everybody's welcome. You struggle with doubt? You're welcome. Struggle with anger? You're welcome. You're going to deny me later? I still want to befriend you. You're going to betray me later like Judas? I still want to be in friendship with you. Pretty profound. That this community would be a community of grace and forgiveness and love for people who don't have their act all together, who have secrets. Reminds me of my favorite story is Andrew Carnegie. He had a news reporter who came to him one day and said, How is it that you have been able to hire and have working for you more millionaires than the rest of the world even exists? How did you get this many millionaires working for you? Carnegie said, well, they weren't millionaires until they worked for me. He said, but I got a principle of leadership that I use. He said, developing great leaders is like mining for gold. When you go into the mine, you don't go looking for dirt. But you're going to have to move an awful lot of dirt to get a little bit of gold. And when I develop people, I have to move an awful lot of dirt. And you've got to be in the dirt business if you're a people developer. 
so that you can refine and find the gold. And Jesus does the same thing. You got a lot of dirt, anger, doubt, secrets. Jesus says, welcome. I'll step in the mine with you. Because my community is about moving an awful lot of dirt to help you find the gold that you can be known as and really believe that you're a special treasure, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Not because of what you did, because last week wasn't that great, last night wasn't that great, because of what he did. And that's the power of this vision. And think about the team of rivals that you've known in history. Abraham Lincoln's an example. Abraham Lincoln is known for his cabinet was a team of rivals, people who disagreed. And yet how many of us can identify very many people on a team of rivals? We just remember what kind of a leader Abraham Lincoln was to bring those people together. Winston Churchill had his war council, even included his enemy, the Prime Minister Neville, that he just replaced. Yet all of them didn't speak to the individual members of the team. They spoke to the leadership of someone who could bring people of such diversity together for a common vision. And the same thing with the disciples. When you realize what scoundrels they are, they speak to what a genius leadership Jesus had that he could take these type of people with these type of issues and create such a common vision of learning to love each other and love the world that it would turn the Roman Empire upside down. But again, you look at these 12 guys and go, well, Chad, you got the wrong application. I think the proper application is prayer doesn't work. Because one of the 12, Judas, known as the betrayer, the traitor, is going to turn his back on him. If that's the ideal, I don't think I want prayer if I'm going to end up with one twelfth of my things sort of backfiring on me and getting me crucified. Why would Jesus, having heard from God, pick somebody he knows is going to betray him? Because that's what the message of the Bible is all about. God loves people and befriends people who he knows will betray him. He loves people he knows will deny them. Jesus, and that's what grace and forgiveness is all about, is that God is always inviting, even if you don't think you need God, even if you don't like God, if you don't believe in God, that doesn't change how he feels about you. It certainly didn't change how he felt about Judas. And I think if you're going to get serious about prayer, that's actually helpful to understand. Because prayer is simply talking to God about your life, And listening to God, often through reading the Bible, but other ways too, about your life. I don't feel like a holy nation. I just really screwed up. And and you listen to God. There's now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And it it frees you up from guilt and shame. Or, Or you start doing something wrong and you hear something about, oh my goodness, I really did get defensive there and I really need to be more open to feedback. You find yourself rescuing and enabling somebody and you read from Proverbs that says if you rescue a, an angry man, you'll, you'll need to do it again tomorrow. And you start to go, oh my goodness, I've forgotten doing it. some enabling patterns in my life. God begins to give you wisdom for your life as you read the book. But there's going to be times that you pray for things that don't happen. And so this has been a helpful tool for me. There's four ways that God answers prayer. Sometimes God says, Go. You pray for something, go, it happens. Doors fly open, you're like, well, this prayer thing works, I'm going to do more of this. Other times you pray, you bang on the door. Why are we still struggling with infertility, God? It's a good thing. Why so-and-so got pregnant, they want to be pregnant, we can't. 
And God says no. And it is angering and frustrating. And in those moments that God says no, he wants you to know and me to know that he's still good. And he knows something you don't. And he's still with you in the midst of it. Will you trust his goodness even when he says no? Another way God answers is he says slow. A mark of maturity is being able to recognize the difference between no and not yet. If you have kids, you recognize they don't have the maturity for that, right? A not yet is always no. Not yet, that means no! Sometimes God will say slow. You're ready, but the circumstance isn't. There's still some things I'm putting in place that that needs to develop and and marinate a bit. So slow down, and then I'm going to say yes. And that's frustrating. There's other times God says grow. Man, that opportunity is ready. That situation is ready. That relationship is ready. But honestly, you're not. And if I put you in that management position, if I give you that amount of responsibility, if I put you in that situation, you're going to blow it up. You're going to get big-headed. You're not humble enough. Your character isn't high enough. You haven't been conformed. I haven't got enough gold refined in you enough that you're not ready for that. So it's ready, but I need you to grow in order to take part of that. And so if you think about your life, as you think about prayers, just recognize that God answers in different ways. Go, no, slow, and grow. And my challenge to you as we leave today is this. Remember, most of us don't feel the urgency of great communication with God or with others. We only feel the consequences of bad communication. So here's my suggestion. Here's my takeaway. Here's my challenge for us. Let's stick some urgency into our life that we get urgent about great communication rather than waiting a year, a month, a decade with a bad communication to dissolve a marriage or dissolve a friendship or dissolve a department. Let's get passionate about the urgency of great communication by doing this. What if we prioritize in our marriages, in our families, in our companies, in our spiritual life, prioritize great communication instead of repairing poor communication? How much better would our marriages be like, what's well, not bad enough to a counselor yet? Right. Okay. One wheel's falling off our marriage. Two wheels have fallen off. We can say, the engine still runs. What if instead of dealing with the poor communication, all the problems of that, we said, I'm going to prioritize great communication? How much better would your marriage be if you'd done that five years ago? How much better would a relationship with a son or daughter been if you hadn't put that off? Where might you be in your 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 exploration of spiritual matters if you hadn't put off this whole prayer God thing for the last two decades. And I'm not saying there's a time I'm saying, but start now. Start now prioritizing great communication. Don't wait another year. Don't wait another week. Don't wait another month. Start now. Sensitize yourself to how God might want to speak to you. I was just down in Belize, uh, sorry, Cancun last week with a group of guys and just got to hear them talking about praying for the first time, being part of a group of guys who are trying to hear from God for the first time, doing great work together, feeling like, I want to be with a group of guys who are serving others. And often that comes from time of prayer. And maybe for you, you need to learn how to talk to God. So how do you spend 15 minutes with God? Here's a quick acronym, TALK. Try just 15 minutes. That may feel like an eternity. Maybe you start with five. The T. Thank God for aspects of your life. Sort of go through your day or your week and thank God for different things he's done or things going on in your life. A, 
Ask God to forgive you for some things, to lead you in some areas, to guide you, prompt you. Anything, God, I need to sort of forgive or apologize for? L. List areas of concern. I'm worried about this, God. I need some help over here. But I really could, could use some wisdom over here. List some things where you, you have concerns about yourself and others. And then lastly, know God through the Bible. Pick up the book of Proverbs. Pick up the book of John. Just read a couple verses. It might seem opaque the first time you read it. But just say, God, I'm, I'm trying here. Speak through this book if you're really in there. And help me know something about myself or you if it's true. Just try spending 15 minutes with God and see what might happen. See if it can sensitize you to what he might want you to do. What it's like for you to proclaim him to a world filled with hurting people. And maybe as we've been mentioning these five ways to connect with Horizon, maybe that's opening up that, that startup guide and using that to connect with God over the next month or next couple of weeks. Maybe it's getting into a group for the first time. Maybe like the guys down in Cancun or those in Cancun uh, down in Belize this week. You want to pray about going on a mission trip. Say, God, should I give up a whole week of vacation? And, and might by giving of myself, I might learn something about how to commune with you in a way I never have before. Maybe financially, for those who gave and heard from God years ago when we were down at the property and, and praying about giving, maybe you just want to say, hey, listen, this hasn't been high pressure. I'm so glad of that. I, don't, I gave up on church because I want to be money. And if you're a guest here, you know, there's no pressure. But if you've been attending Horizon, say, I'd like to at least hear from God how I might give to be part of what's going to happen with the next generation. To create 20% more capacity as we're trying to raise a million dollars for that and 200,000 additional operation. Like, well, how are you supposed to give, Chad? You haven't given us forms or, or, or cards? Because it's wide open. Some people are giving lump sums. Some people are doing two or three year pledges. There's no system. We want you to talk to God. And have a vision for a community that's about creating a kingdom of priests to invite every people, everybody into this relationship. And as God prompts you, call up the office. We'll figure it out. That part's easy. But let's be a community that cares for and loves other people who believe the way we do and the way, believe the way we don't believe. An exploring environment. Let's sensitize ourselves to his voice. I had a friend named Peter. He used to live in downtown Chicago. And he had a friend who was a Native American who lived on a reservation. He came to visit him one time in Chicago. And they're walking through downtown Chicago. And there's, you know, typical noise and people yelling and screaming. And there's, you know, taxis honk, 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 car alarms going off. You know, which never means somebody's breaking into your car, by the way. It means that somebody didn't turn off the car alarm. And so all the noise is going on. He's walking with his friend, this Native American. And uh, Peter turns to him and says, hey, what's going on? Are you enjoying the big city? He's like, wait a second, do you hear that? I hear lots of stuff. What are you talking about? His Native American friend says, Do you hear the cricket? The cricket? How in the world? He goes, No, no, listen, seriously, come with me. He walks down the sidewalk a little bit. He reaches underneath the sidewalk, and sure enough, he finds a cricket. Peter says, how in the world did you hear that cricket? He said, well, just over the years, I've sensitized myself to be able to recognize the sound of a cricket, even with all the noise. He said, your culture has done the same thing. He's like, no, we haven't. He's like, oh, yeah. He goes, your culture has sensitized itself to certain sounds that get their attention immediately. He's like, well, give me an example. His Native American friend reaches his hand in his pocket and goes, 20-yard radius, every head turns. 
What if you began to just begin to sensitize yourself to know what God's voice sounds like for conviction, for leading, for wisdom? But for many of us, we don't live with any margin. And because we don't live with any margin, we really don't know how to sensitize ourselves to God because we don't know how to even be still. Well, let's pray together. God, we confess we're not good at being still. But in this moment of stillness, there are many here who need freedom from secrets. God, would you tap them on the shoulder and nudge them that there's freedom available? God, many here were carrying a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of pride, a lot of insensitivity, a lot of disrespect toward people we say we love. Would your Holy Spirit tap us on the shoulder? Maybe give us one thing that we need to go apologize for. Probably several here today have big decisions to make. And they need wisdom. Would you use maybe just 15 minutes of learning how to talk to you to give some wisdom this week, some direction? Some here today have fear. There's a lot of unknown that just came their way. Medical report, job situation. Father, would you take a moment and just pour into them your, your courage? And they could be strong and courageous, knowing that you will not leave them or forsake them. Maybe as we close today, you just want to say a prayer, a real quick prayer. Just say, God, I need you. I've been depending on myself, and I want to start depending on you. Teach me how to even talk to you. And God, we thank you that verse, you say in James, that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So Father, in our own feeble ways, we're trying to draw near to you. And we believe the promise that when we try, you will draw near to us. And draw near to every family, every hurt, every challenge, every celebration. God, that you would rejoice with those who rejoice this morning and weep with those who weep. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.